What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton's book has started to leak out to the public with reports and excerpts in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. It is now topic number one in American public conversation because it revealed the inner workings of American foreign policy under the Trump administration, including some truly shocking revelations, even by Trump administration standards, about things the president has done and said and the way in which foreign policymaking works in this White House. On this episode of Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to dive into what Bolton's book actually says. We're going to talk about what we know about the contents, and we're going to talk about the extent to which we can believe it and how mad you should be that John Bolton refused to say any of this before the House Intelligence Committee. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey! I can't believe we're giving him exactly what he wants. Okay, I don't think that that's true. Uh, I really don't. And my theory, and I I don't know if I said this during any of our planning meetings, but I really sincerely believe this, is that we have read the stuff about Bolton's book so our listeners don't have to. None of you need to buy John Bolton's book, and you probably shouldn't. All the literary reviews say it's badly written and rushed. So, like, don't read it for literature. And all of the... All of the survey stuff, all the stuff you need to know about it is just going to come out of the press and recordings like this one. So don't buy John Bolton's book. I mean, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, but it's I your job to. Pre-order. <laughs> it's our job yeah. to, right? Listeners fair, are not fair us. Enough. We are doing a service by sifting through the bad book to help people understand yeah. the interesting news in the bad book. So on that note, one thing we should, we should say, first of all, um, if it wasn't clear... Uh, as Zach said, this is based on accounts that are, uh, including one that was an actual excerpt that was published in the Wall Street Journal, and then reports uh, from other news outlets who have seen it. We here at Worldly have not seen the actual manuscript, so we are basing this off of reports, but they all three of the, the reports all track and basically say the same thing. Yeah, and the Wall Street uh, Journal one so, is literally an excerpt, so we did read that yeah, part of the so, book. Right. So just so we're clear, though, um, there may be other things that have not leaked out yet that we may need to address in future worldly episodes. We don't know. We'll see. But there's enough in there today for us to talk about. I've only seen one paragraph, but it was enough that uh, I was I was good for today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we should dive into the contents of the book now that we've we've danced around it for a little bit, because when we say it's shocking, 
I mean, it's it's truly shocking, some of the stuff that's in this book. And, and we're all jaded Trump observers. We've been following this administration's foreign policy and inner workings closely since before the so administration jaded. started. Uh, and and there's there's one line in particular uh, that I that I just can't get out of my head. I'm going to read it to you. It's from the Wall Street Journal. So this is an actual quote in the book. At the opening dinner of the Osaka G20 meeting in June 2019, with only interpreters present, Xi, the Chinese president, had explained to Trump why he was basically building concentration camps in Xinjiang. According to our interpreter, Trump said that Xi should go ahead with building the camps, which Trump thought was exactly the right thing to do. I I want to linger on that for a second. This is the president of the United States telling the leader of China that it is not only okay with him, that they are building concentration camps that are designed for, if not the physical extermination, the cultural extermination of China's Muslim minority, the Uyghurs, but saying that he should do it, that it is the right thing to do. And not only does Bolton say that he heard this, but in the book he says that the National Security Council's top Asia staffer, Matthew Pottinger, told me that Trump said something very similar during his November 2017 trip to China. Yeah, uh, I don't even have words for this, which is stunning because I can talk about anything. The idea, first of all, that the American president, that any American president would be okay to tell a Chinese leader this is is horrifying. This isn't also theoretical, right? Not that that would be okay either. But, you know, when Trump talked about the, you know, the Muslim ban and and doing all that. And he even tried to do the Muslim ban, right? And and it didn't work out uh, the way he planned it because of the court stepped in and, and all of that. But even, you know, musing on the campaign trail uh, about things like that w- were theoretical at the time. This is literally happening already, that there are Uyghur Muslims being rounded up by the thousands uh, and other people who are not Uyghur Muslims who are also getting caught up in it, by the way, uh, and put in these camps that are... are actually called by the Chinese government re-education camps, where there are reports of of torture and horrific things happening. They are being surveilled in in Xinjiang. Political indoctrination is going on. A Pentagon official called them literally concentration camps. And Trump is saying this, that it's okay, that this is the right thing to do, is a level of moral depravity that is a new low for the Trump administration. And again, that's on the scale of already the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, with the, with the normal caveats of, you know, the the translator maybe under, misunderstanding or Bolton getting it wrong or Trump not understanding what she was saying or having no familiarity with the situation, um, let's be clear that this is by far the worst revelation in the book uh, that, that at least has leaked out. I mean, other things have gotten top billing, um, which we'll talk about later, but this is by far the worst thing Um that we now know, and or at least Bolton is claiming. And uh, I, I, for one, would love to hear from Matthew Pottinger to see if he can confirm this, because it's interesting, as, as other things have come out, like other members of the Trump administration or former members have confirmed certain bits. Um, I have yet to see anyone else confirm this aspect. But it's important that we know, especially if Trump has said this repeatedly. If it is true that Xi Jinping said, I'm putting Muslims in, in concentration camps, and Trump goes, that sounds good. And then if he's expressed that sentiment constantly, then we know how he feels about, 
you know, subjugating American values to to Chinese whims in, at these times, but also how he seems to feel perhaps in a deep, dark place about Muslims in general. I'm almost sure, and this is not an excuse, uh, but I'm almost sure that she, as he has publicly said that these Uyghurs are terrorists, and I'm sure he sold it to Trump that way, and Trump not knowing anything. Uh, again, another revelation in this book is that, like, Trump didn't even know that Finland is not a part of Russia, right? So, like, to, for Trump to understand the intricacies of the situation, I'm sure she sold it to him in a in a better packaged way, and Trump uh, went along with it. But that still is not... Uh, uh, Okay, right? This is a bad thing that he did. It is the worst thing of his presidency to the point um, that there are now like Trump friendly people that on Twitter last night were basically saying Trump should lose all 50 states because of this. It's important, uh, I think, to, in, in all fairness, to note that Trump uh, has denied, since this came out, has denied flatly saying this. And it's also important to note that on the same day that these excerpts were released, that uh, Trump did actually sign the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020. So this is um, basically a law that Congress passed and he signed it, which condemns gross human rights violations of the Uyghur Muslims in China and also like gives the authority to impose sanctions on people. So it's weird, right? You know, the, the same day that this is happening, he also signs this policy. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, he did this and it's horrific. Um, on the other hand, it seems like at least Congress may have taken enough action to to push Trump on this. And perhaps by now he has learned what is really going on. And maybe someone has explained to him and he actually listened that like, no, this is horrific and, and this is not something we should support. Um, he may still feel the same way. I don't know. But I will say that official U.S. policy that he signed into law now is condemning the human rights violations. Although it should be, be said that the White House has barely paid attention to detail here because the number of the bill on the declaration that he signed is different than the actual bill that came out of Congress. Right. So Yeah. So there's that. So yeah. I, I, I also think that that almost gives them too much credit than they deserve. You two are being too nice to the White House here. The reason that this sentiment matters is not just that it reveals that the president is a bad person with bad values, which is a thing that I don't think anyone will find particularly surprising if you've been paying attention to this administration, especially when it comes to policy towards ethnic minorities. But the fact that this has been going on for years, China's uh, basically cultural extermination policy in Xinjiang, and the White House has had a tremendous amount of leverage, authority, unilateral power to do things about it, right? They didn't need to wait for Congress to put human rights pressure on China in this regard or rally international sentiment or see what existing um, sanctions legislation could do or support, you know, human rights groups doing investigation to that or use the, the use organizations like Voice of America to try to broadcast information to these groups and undermine China's hold uh, on the region or at the very least make trouble for China there. Like there's, there's uh, thousands of different policy levers. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much, right? Like lots of different things that the administration could do if it wanted to challenge the Chinese government on this front because the human rights abuses are so severe, because they're the kind of thing that people will look back on 
30, 40, 50 years from now and say, how did everybody at this time just go around living their life like this was normal while China was doing this thing, right? This is the, the scale of moral atrocity we're talking about. And the fact that they, yeah. they just signed a bill in 2020 when there was tons of unilateral authority to do something about it and the White House did nothing. And, and Alex, I don't think the president being ignorant should qualify as an excuse under these circumstances, right? Yeah, uh, and he I, was clear I, he didn't say that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say it was an excuse, I said it was an explanation. Yeah, and, and I think Alex is probably close to the mark on that, honestly. Yeah, it's just the point is that maybe maybe he was hoodwinked, maybe he was lazy, but I the the quote is so revealing. It shows the president has such disinterest on one of the truly horrific moral stains of our time uh, that, that no matter what the context is, so long as Bolton didn't outright fabricate it, and I don't think he did if he also said that Pottinger heard the same thing. Like, that would just be really stupid on Bolton's part. Um, and he's many things, but he's not a dumb man, right? I, it seems to me that some version of that actually happened, or at least I, my prior is to believe that. And no amount of context can make it defensible and make it not a window into the moral bankruptcy when it comes to human rights of, this, of the U.S. government under the current administration. Yeah, I think— you really lead into a, a good point that it kind of opens up to some of the other revelations from the book. Um, you know, Trump's disinterest uh, in knowing basic facts or caring to listen to things um, is is a thread that's obviously run through his administration uh, and, you know, through his life more generally before he was ever even in politics. Um, but, you know, there are several revelations. You know, Zach kind of flicked at it earlier. Uh, Trump thinking that Finland was maybe a satellite of Russia or part of Russia and not knowing. Um, apparently, also, according to Bolton, Trump was on a, a phone call with uh, UK officials, uh, with the prime minister, uh, Theresa May at the time, and somebody, I think, mentioned that they were a nuclear power, uh, and he was like, wait, you're a nuclear power? And John Bolton's read of it was that uh, Trump was absolutely not joking and was dead serious asking that question. Um, this one this is, is this by the one way, is funny to me. This one is just right, really but this funny. is this is by the way, John Bolton wasn't national security advisor at the beginning of Trump's administration, right? Like this is this is well into Trump's tenure as president that he's discovering that our literal like one of our closest allies who fights beside us uh, in multiple war fronts. Had has nuclear weapons. By the way, I understand that most people probably don't know like the history of who got nuclear weapons when. The UK got them third, uh, and the only reason they they kind of waited a while is because we were kind of working on them together for a while through the Manhattan Project, and then they decided to get their own. Uh, but they were the third ones to get it after us and the Soviets. So uh, they've had them since the fifties. I'm just I'm, saying. I'm just like sort of dying internally thinking about what how Theresa May must have reacted to this. Like, <laughs> you're the prime minister of the UK and you're talking to the American president and they're like, you have nukes? And like, what do you say? <laughs> what do you do? Like, are you an idiot? The normal amount of condescension that would be appropriate there obviously can't be used given the power dynamics of the US-UK relationship. So I'm just trying to think about how she and her staff could handle that diplomatically. And it's very, very funny <laughs> setting aside <laughs> <laughs> the underlying horror of the situation. 
I mean, the, this this goes with a lot of what Bolton notes in the book and we've known already, which is just Trump not only is dangerously uninformed, um, which is the nicest way I can put it, but he's unwilling to learn anything. I mean, the, the intelligence briefings that he's supposed to get. I mean, so we all get the for listeners, we all get the White House public schedule every morning. And one of the things that I've turned into my own little pet project is to look every morning to see if he's getting an intelligence briefing. And most and of the when, days- And what time. And when and at what time. And if he does get one, it's usually in the afternoon, which is way against convention because usually that's like the first thing the president does um, is a briefing like it's, you know, 6, 30, 7, 8 in the morning. Trump maybe gets it around 2 or 3 p.m. And that's if he gets it during the day. And even Bolton says in the book, uh, essentially- look, these are a waste of time because Trump isn't listening to the intelligence briefers. He's just like talking. He's just yelling at them and saying what he believes. This is the kind of guy that's in charge, right? So when we're, when we're talking about the Uyghur thing or we're talking about Finland when we're talking about the UK nukes, whatever it is, you have to understand that like Trump doesn't know anything and he's unwilling to learn anything. And this isn't actually mass. This has been a massive problem the, the entirety of his presidency. And it's been one of America's honestly undercovered, in my view, um, you know, biggest national security weaknesses that no matter where Trump goes, he just doesn't know how to have a conversation with someone. And it is part of what makes him such an easy mark for people like she yeah. and Mohammed bin Salman and any other dictator around the world. Vladimir Putin, uh, for example. Erdogan, there's a <laughs> the, uh, president uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. There's a there's an excerpt from Bolton's book about that. That uh, essentially Erdogan passed uh, Trump this like memo. So basically, the Justice Department um, is looking into this Turkish bank with ties to Erdogan that is uh, suspected of violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. And so uh, apparently during a meeting. Erdogan gave Trump this memo uh, from the firm that's representing the bank, basically saying this is this is, you know, this is not legitimate and you should drop this. Uh, Trump apparently then declared that he believed the bank was innocent and said that he would take care of things and that the uh, this was going to the Southern District uh, Court in the U.S. They were not his people. They were Obama people and he would fix it, you know, in a meeting with Erdogan rather than like. I'll take it under advisement. You know, even if you don't know, like that's fine. I mean, it's not, it's not fine. First of all, it's not fine. But that aside, right? Like even if he didn't know, take the memo. Thanks. I'll take it under advisement and discuss with my people and just like move on. You don't have to go. Yeah, no, that seems right. Seems, seems right. Authoritarian leader. I believe you. And sorry, just to, to add uh, like a bit of context here. And I mean, granted, these are Joe Biden's people saying what I'm about to say. So take it with all the grains of salt. But basically, they talked about a meeting that Joe Biden as vice president had with Erdogan where Erdogan tried the exact same thing. He gave a memo from Hulk Bank, talked about, hey, can you look into this? And at least from what multiple Biden officials who were in the room said is like Biden goes, nope, they are independent. The rule of law in America, like, you know, I could take your memo, but like I'm not getting involved. And that's the bare minimum. That's all you have to do. That's right. literally all Trump would have had to do. Just and the be, fact that he can't even do Joe. that. And right. it's not even like partisan to say that, by the way. Like, Correct. Like Republican presidents in the past would have responded in the same exact way of saying, sorry, rule of law. I can't interfere with my courts. Like it's literally just a, a main principle of American law and, and democracy. Just throwing it out there. So um, the the top line in a lot of the news stuff is also related to Trump's relationship with another dictator that we've been talking about a lot in this, which is the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Um, and Trump asking him, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, that for 
for China to increase its purchases of U.S. soybeans in exchange for Trump relaxing all these tariffs that he's been uh, imposing on China as part of this ongoing, long-running, not-really-resolved trade war. And the reason he asked for that, and apparently, according to Bolton, he was explicit about this, is that he needs help with his re-election, and soybean producers are, uh, you know, important Midwest heartland swing voters. Um, this has been billed as, like, Trump did, once again, Trump is asking for help from an authoritarian leader with his re-election bid. And I agree that's troubling. Um, but I had a feeling that in some of the reports, and I, I think you two agree with me here, that this has been a bit overplayed uh, as like one of the real sort of like bombshells from the book. I know. I totally believe it's overplayed. I mean, look, it is not good if if Trump's main motivation for wanting soybeans bought from American farmers was to help his re-election bid. Uh, if that was number one in his heart, well, that's never just good in terms of just who he is. You should want American soybeans bought um, because it helps farmers and it helps the American economy in general. And, and, and Trump, who's in the middle of the trade war with China, if that was one way to relax it, you buy soybeans, I reduce tariffs, that's part and parcel of how you do these negotiations. But like also just the history of, of American foreign policy, um, what president has taken a foreign policy decision in which domestic calculations weren't a part of it? I mean, granted, there are some times where mis massive mistakes were made and, and domestic considerations may have been fifth or sixth, like on the list of considerations, but it, it was always a part of it. And so this notion that like Trump says buy soybeans and that you and that way you'll help my election. Well, I, I, I think this like within the context of Ukraine and, and Russia stuff, like, okay, I get why that sticks out, but it just doesn't seem like a smoking gun in any way. It just seems like Trump has his priorities as president of the United States wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of of two minds of this. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I, I agree with, with that assessment. Um, it, I, I don't even think it's that odd, honestly, for a president in negotiations that are, you know, private. They're, First of all, there's a reason that negotiations between world leaders are generally supposed to be kept private uh, because they want to be able to have the ability to, to speak freely. And it's not that strange for you know a leader to be like, look, you know, I'm in a negotiation with this foreign leader to say, look, I I, I need you to give me uh, give me something I can work with here. I you know I need to get reelected. My farmers are hurting. You're gonna have to do something for me. And, and, you know that seems like a, a very normal part of negotiation. On the other hand. The thing that that kind of bothers me, um, beyond the fact that Trump is actually literally already publicly on camera uh, in a news gaggle, just called on China to go after Joe Biden for his electoral prospects, like he's not subtle about that. So I don't even know what the problem here is. Um, but the other thing is like, what if it weren't soybean farmers, right? Like what if it were another aspect of the U.S. economy that was actually really hurting that, I don't know, were traditionally Democratic voters? And he purposely didn't ask China yeah. to boost that, you know, aspect of the economy because those are not my voters and I don't care about them. That's where it gets scary. If you're only strictly thinking about my voters, my vote, my election versus the American economy and I am president of this whole country, that's where that's where this could have gotten, I think, a little hairy. So you don't know what else he's not, you know, not trying to, to push on if it doesn't benefit his base. And, oh, oh. and that's where I think it's disturbing. Oh, that's a really, really good point, Jen. This idea that that foreign policy shouldn't be c conducted with the good of the nation in mind, but the good of a particular subset of voters who you believe that you are responsive to. This is like a pretty consistent through line in Trump's domestic policy, right? This idea that there are really, there's a real America 
Um, and those are the people who deserve protections from the state and who cares about those blue staters. You saw it a lot during the coronavirus stuff. It's a very common yep. feature of, of populist regimes in general, right? This idea yep. that there's a deserving portion of the population who represents authentic, real, um, meaningful, true Americans or true, I don't know, insert country here. Uh, that's very common in populist regimes. But I also think, uh, Jen, the, the other point that you made, I guess I'm just a real big Jen fan today, uh, was, was really Love good, it. which is that- Keep it coming. What Trump said about China in private, asking for help with his reelection, actually, to my mind, is less offensive than what he said publicly, uh, where he was <laughs> basically asking for China to investigate Joe Biden and his ties, right? To initiate like criminal legal, not necessarily criminal, but certainly some kind of legal proceedings against- his rival or his rival's son uh, is is really very, very concerning. The soybean stuff is bad. I don't want to say it's not bad. I'm just saying it's it's not as bad as the Ukraine situation. And it's not as bad as what he said publicly. And there's this tendency in the press to be like, well, we found something or we heard something new that Trump did in secret. So therefore, <laughs> it must be a big scandal when the big scandal was sitting there in public all along. We all know that it happened because he did it on live television. <laughs> he said this. Like, during impeachment, like, it was around the same time that he was literally being impeached for doing the same thing, but to Ukraine. I just— I, Yeah, just because Trump says something in public doesn't mean it's less controversial. In fact, it is more controversial than this thing. Uh, and look, I, it should be said again, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative who was in the meeting, denied that Trump had turned the conversation to the election, that this had happened, um, in the same way that he denied a, a bunch of other things. So that's important to put out there. Yeah, Alex, I'm glad you keep noting these denials uh, because after we take a quick break, which we're going to do about now, we're going to come back and talk about the the bigger questions surrounding Bolton's book. How much how much trust can we put in this book, and why we should maybe be a little bit skeptical of certain elements of what Bolton is doing right now. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about John Bolton's new book uh, and what it says about the inner workings of the Trump administration. And, and so far, we've been dissecting what the book presents, right? Like the narrative, the the sort of isolated incidents of wrongdoing or ignorance by the president, uh, the, the real top ones from it. But there are a lot of questions surrounding the book uh, that uh, you know are not contained in the text itself, starting with how much do we trust what John Bolton says? Like, I don't have a good answer to that. Like a lot of this tracks with what we know about the Trump administration. Some of it, as we were just discussing, tracks with literally what Trump has said in public. But John Bolton, boy, I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, Alex, you're making a face, so I think you should probably weigh in here before I go. All right, um, I will try to keep what it will sh what would normally be a long rant into a short. <laughs> Please rant away. Um, okay. So I read John Bolton's other book, uh, Surrender is Not an Option, in which he basically spent many hundreds of pages railing against arms controllers and State Department bureaucrats and, and White House officials 
with the general tone of they are wrong, I am right, America should listen to me, otherwise the world's going to hell. Uh, and I, again, I have not read this book, but the reviews from people who have are that it's basically the exact same thing. It is just another John Bolton, I am right, you are wrong, everyone else is dumb, I am smart, um, you know, diatribe. And, and Bolton, we should know, like, did leave the administration on bad terms with Trump. And in part because, and we shouldn't remember this, John Bolton really wanted to go to war with Iran and Venezuela, and Trump wouldn't let him do it. Uh, and like, there's there's this apparently great scene in in the book in which Bolton like wants to go home in order to change his clothes uh, because he's expecting Trump to attack Iran after Iran had downed a U.S. drone, and then Trump at the last minute didn't do it, and Bolton was like, "This is a stupid decision. One of the worst I've ever seen an American president make." And like, if that's the kind of place Bolden goes to. Um, you have to wonder how else he's sort of exaggerating. Because, like, Trump not attacking Iran for downing of an American drone is is fairly logical. You may not agree with it, but, like, it is not, by any stretch of the imagination, one of the worst decisions the president has ever made. Let alone one of the worst decisions this president has made. <laughs> or even this week. Yeah, it was a good, right. it was actually so, a good decision. Never mind, but, <laughs> you, <laughs> sorry, no, but like you can No, but that's fair. You can make that case. Yeah. Uh, so, my whole thing with Bolton is I think he's he and also from other people who've read the book, he under he in no way like reflects on himself. How did right. I act? What did I do? Um, did I lead a process correctly? And like he didn't. He didn't lead a national security process. He pushed the U.S. to get into multiple wars. He took advantage of Trump not getting involved in details to run basically his own foreign policy. Um, and the fact that Bolton is now speaking out late um, should not erase all of this. Bolton is not the most trustworthy narrator. Now, last point. He is known to take meticulous notes. He is known to be, you know, like very observant of what he's doing. He's known very famously as a bureaucratic infighter, and that requires a, a lot of political skill and a lot of awareness. So it does not surprise me, and it would not surprise me, that some of these anecdotes, not a lot of them, end up being true. But the general tone of the narration, the general story that he's built, which is, this entire place is being run on whim and it is chaotic and it is like, and it's all because they didn't listen to me. Like it is true. The Trump administration is chaotic. It is true that a lot runs on whim, but it is filtered through Bolton saying I was the savior this entire time. And so I have trouble believing that a lot of what he's saying is exactly in the way that he's, that he is describing it. Yeah. Uh, there's also the, the thing we've kind of been dancing around uh, the whole time, um, which is that, he literally refused to testify before the House Intelligence Committee on what he knew about what Trump had said uh, to the Ukrainians during the impeachment trial. Uh, and the White House had told him, you know, they basically issued this blanket, uh, you know, not injunction. I don't think it was formal, but basically just told everyone at the White House, everyone in the executive branch, you can't you can't talk, you can't testify. Bolton complied with that. Uh, many officials who worked under him and with him did not. They chose to speak out. They chose to go testify, uh, including Fiona Hill, uh, my former colleague at Brookings, who was one of the star witnesses um, and also hilariously told a great story about a haircut when she was a child. I highly recommend going and finding that. But, um, you know, many people chose, knowing that it could hurt their careers, knowing that it might be a career ender, at least with this administration, um, knowing that they would face massive backlash, made the decision to go public with this. 
Bolton did not. Uh, he eventually did say that he would be willing if subpoenaed to testify and Republicans in, in Congress blocked it and didn't let him testify. So at the end, uh, it in the was Senate, yeah. Le- yeah, in the Senate, it was less on him and more on Senate Republicans literally blocking that opportunity. But there's a really important reason why I bring this up. In, in the book, uh, as far as we know, he accuses, Bolton accuses the Democrat-led House of Representatives of committing, quote, impeachment malpractice. Um, but here's why. Not because they shouldn't have impeached Trump or they shouldn't have been investigating it, but he says they committed impeachment malpractice by not going beyond his dealings with Ukraine to investigate other disturbing actions of Trump's. Um, you know, like all the things that Bolton lists in his book. Uh, and as uh, our colleague and frequent worldly guest, uh, Jen Kirby, writes, you know, if only there were someone who could have helped the House Intelligence Committee, I don't know, investigate some of that stuff, like maybe John Bolton. Um, he refused to speak out at all. He didn't do anything publicly. He didn't release any of this information. He didn't do any interviews about this stuff. He didn't talk about any of this during the trial. You know, even if he didn't want to testify, like he didn't go on, I don't know, CNN and just reveal some of the stuff. It, nothing at all. But now he has a book to sell. And now he's, you know, singing like a bird. So uh, it, not a hero is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, this is difficult for me to evaluate, right? And this is part of why we said don't buy the book at the beginning. Because like, <laughs> I, we don't really want you to economically or financially reward this particular behavior. Again, we will I'm tell... I'm not anti-book reading in general. Um, no, but, no, no, know. no. I hope to one day write a book <laughs> that you all will buy. But... Um, <laughs> I'm not writing one right now, but I certainly hope it's better than this one. Uh, I just mean that the news media will tell you what you need to know about the book. Setting this aside, um, it's difficult to evaluate because it doesn't actually undermine the validity of the claims that are made in the book. The fact that he is releasing details of it in a self-interested way, was hiding things from legitimate processes, speaks to Bolton's character as a person, right? It suggests that he cares far less about protecting the nation from a president that he himself admits is unfit. Uh, than he does his own book sales, and that's like morally condemnatory, right? So John Bolton, consistent with what we've known about him for a while, is not a great person. Uh, On the other hand, I don't know. He just... (laughs) It, like you can't you can't say that things in the book are not true because they were released in a particular way that was designed to be maximally beneficial for the person releasing them, right? Like it doesn't speak to the truth value of the statements in the book. It just speaks to the character of the person releasing them, which then maybe in an indirect way speaks to their truth value. I don't know. it's a it's very difficult for me to evaluate how to think about whether or not I should believe the things in the book relative yeah. to. Uh, like what I should think about John Bolton as a person based on the circumstances, the lack of testimony, which is particularly egregious. Like he could have testified before the house and he's like, nah, no, not doing that. Yeah. I think, um, you know, listeners who are not journalists may not know that this happens behind the scenes a lot of times, but a lot of news that gets leaked to the media, a lot of stories that are broken to reporters are purposely leaked for reasons of politics or personal glory or covering your butt or whatever the case may be. And that doesn't mean that the news that comes out is false, right? It doesn't mean it's fake. Just because somebody leaks something to make their, you know, their rival inside an administration look bad, right? Or whatever reason, or they leak something else to make, you know, themselves look good or to make the administration look good or whatever, 
if the information itself is valid, then it's valid, right? It's information. Um, and if it's verifiable, I think that's one of the troubling things is that, you know, one, this is published as a nonfiction book, which some people may not know, don't actually get a ton of fact checking. Um, institutionally, that's not really a thing, which is pretty surprising, I think, yeah, for a lot of people. Authors are expected so to compared, pay for their own fact checkers if they want them, which is wild. Right. So compared to like publishing this, uh, you know, if like a journalist were to publish this uh, or whatever, these excerpts, the ones that journalists have published, um, you know, there does seem to be some attempt to try to confirm some of the stuff. There's one part, I think, Alex, if you want to address that, uh, there's a part in the book that does actually seem to be false. I'm not sure why. Um, it, I don't know if it's Bolton's misunderstanding um, of the situation or, or what. Do you want to do you want to explain that? Yeah, it's the one that's gotten a bit of attention too. It's uh, basically it, it's the moment in which uh, Trump is having a summit with Kim Jong Un, and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, hands a note over to Bolton, which says, you know, he's full of shit. Um, Bolton takes that note to um, mean that Pompeo is referring to the president. Uh, this is actually literally one paragraph of the book that I have seen um, itself. And it's unclear. The way it's written is actually pretty bad. Um, and honestly, you could just as easily, and in fact, I think it makes a lot more sense, to believe that Pompeo was talking about Kim Jong-un, not Trump. Because Kim was basically like saying, oh, I can't give up all my weapons. I've got a lot of whatever. And that's the moment when Pompeo hands the note over. Um, Pompeo denies, of course, having even, you know, calling Trump that. Um, or passing the note in general. So, again, more denials. Um, but yeah, I, I think there are some issues in the book. And, and look, uh, that said, my favorite denial in general from this White House, outside of the fact that they're literally, you know, like trying to stop the book from coming out, even though it's coming out next week, um, is like Trump, Trump and others basically saying, well, look, the information's classified. Well, like, yeah. all right, you could say the information is classified, but then you're admitting that the information is true. Like, it can be both classified and accurate. Just because it's classified doesn't mean it's false. Like, the, the, their argument is, well, we had classified conversations, therefore it shouldn't be in the book. That's fine. You can feel that way. Isn't um, it the reverse, it actually? The like, the fact that it's classified, like, it would be classified information would mean it's true, right? Like, you're releasing. That's, that's what I said, yeah. Right. But, like, if it were false, it wouldn't. You wouldn't have to say, oh, but that's classified. You would just say that literally never happened. Right, and right. Potentially could have, you know, a case of, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a, a media lawyer, but, you know, libel or like actual legal recourse to say like, though, these are straight up lies that never happened um, and we can prove it because we have also the actual documents and yeah, maybe they're classified, but we can declassify them. We have memos of these meetings and here's what actually happened. They're not doing that. They're just saying, oh, that's classified. Can't talk about that, which like, um, okay. Right. Yeah, I think I come down on two places just to kind of bridge what we've been talking about. I think the first is, and I think it is honestly the most important, which is that Bolton put book sales above the nation, period, end of story. I think that's true. And then two, which is I was getting in my um, not well thought out rant, but I think you got the point, which was basically that these seem like embellishments in many cases, or Bolton misunderstanding certain certain issues. And the reason we know they're embellishments is because he has a history of making himself the hero of his own story, as a lot of autobiographies tend to do, or a lot of accounts like these tend to do. But Bolton has already has a track record of doing it. So 
I don't doubt that the general thrust of the situation is correct in that Trump is ill-informed. There is no security pro- national security process. Um, Trump doesn't seem to put the interests of the United States above his own. Like all those things that we already knew to be true, Bolton adds even more fuel to that fire. Whether certain instances are true or not, I'm sure a lot of them are. I'm sure a lot of them are misunderstood or, or embellished. But again, like I think as Ezra Vox, Ezra Klein wrote, I think correctly on Twitter when this came out, he's like, every book that comes out about Trump at the end of the day is about how ill-prepared and how unfit he is for this office. And John Bolton has given yet the greatest testimony to that general trend. Except that he didn't actually give testimony, which is a funny use of that word. Um, Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. We're going to leave you there um, because I think Alex and Jen together with that nice little testimony fun. Is that a pun? It's not a pun. It's just a wordplay in in general. Did a very good job putting putting a capper on, on our understanding of the book so far. If anything interesting else comes out of this, we'll be sure to talk about it, but... There might not be. It could just be that that the main things have come out already. Uh, and we'll move on to other important things that are going on in the world. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, who's back on Worldly after a, a long hiatus. Welcome back, Jackson, and thanks for all of your hard work. And we want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all. We'll talk to you next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.